Welcome back to the Manly Saints Project. By me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtues of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. When I became a Catholic, I wanted to show how the saints could be manly role models for us. My weekly exploration of manly saints became the Manly Saints Project. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the links in the show notes to buy me a beer. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today to meet a blessed who was lost long before he was captured by the pirates. Name, Blessed Antony Nayrot. Life, 1425 to 1460. Status, Blessed. Feast, April 10th. It was Palm Sunday of the year 1460. The Sultan Abu Amr Uthman was riding into his capital city of Tunis, surrounded by his entourage, when the procession came to a sudden and unscheduled halt. A lone man was standing in the way. The man was dressed as a Dominican friar, with his hair cut in a monk's tonsure. The man was shouting that he was a Christian, and telling the crowd they should become Christians, too. It wasn't surprising to see Christians in Tunis. There were lots of Christians in the city. Some were free, and many more were slaves, who had been captured when Muslim raiders took Christian ships on the Mediterranean. Christians were tolerated, though not always treated particularly well. And so most Christians chose to keep a low profile and go about their business unnoticed. They did not jump in front of the Sultan's procession and begin preaching at everyone else on the street. Then someone told the Sultan the identity of this particular Christian. His name was Antony. The Sultan sighed. This was going to be a problem. The series of events that had brought Friar Antony to that strange confrontation in the streets of Tunis had begun years before on the other side of the Mediterranean, in Florence, in the north-central part of modern Italy. At that time, Antony had been a young, ambitious new Dominican friar, and he had been placed in the monastery in Florence. Florence was also where Antony met the man who, in Antony's opinion, was trying to ruin his life. That man was the abbot of the monastery, and his name was Antoninus. More properly, the abbot of the Dominican monastery in Florence was also called Antony, but no one used that name. As a boy, he had been known as Little Antony, Antoninus, and he had grown up to be a small man, and the nickname had stuck. Now, the problem with Antoninus wasn't that he was cruel or vindictive or small-minded. On the contrary, Antoninus was one of the greatest men of his age. By now, everyone knew the story. They knew how Antoninus had been refused admission to the Dominican order for not knowing enough about canon law. When he came back to ask again, Antoninus had memorized the texts. 
Antoninus had become an abbot as a young man, but what would have been the pinnacle of many careers was for him just a starting point. Soon he had reformed his monastery and was founding new ones. The Pope himself had insisted that Antoninus become Archbishop of Florence, and when the Pope was dying, he asked for Antoninus to hear his last confession. The new Pope instituted a rule that all church appointments had to be run by Antoninus before they could be approved. Kings and nobles, ordinary clerics and princes of the church, sought his advice. It was the sort of thing that could go to a man's head. But Antoninus went about his life completely untouched by pride. Antoninus became known as the father of the poor, because every day, the little archbishop with the kind eyes found time to sit and talk with the poorest, most destitute people in the city. The people of Florence knew that they had the good fortune to be led by a saint. That was all fine and good, but when Friar Antony arrived in Florence, he soon found himself clashing with Antoninus. It wasn't that Antony objected to anything Antoninus was doing. It was just that Antony had ambitions too, and Antoninus was in the way. Antony wanted to serve God in a great and glorious way. And why not? The late Middle Ages were a time of heroic friars. The crusader St. John of Capistrano, the reformer St. Bernardine of Siena, the mystic preacher St. Vincent Ferrer. Antony had joined the Dominicans, the order of preachers, and he had a true talent for preaching. So it was perfect. God had given him what was necessary to do this sort of glorious work. But for some reason, Antony's abbot, as he was at the time, Antoninus, disagreed. In their conversations, Antoninus told Antony that he wasn't yet ready to become a great preacher. Perhaps he never would be. His work would have to be a more humble one. Antony simply could not reconcile himself to this guidance. He wanted more. It wasn't just that Antoninus stubbornly refused to see that Antony had a good life plan. Antoninus was a problem just for who he was. That problem became even bigger when he left to become Archbishop of Florence. How could Antony become famous as a preacher in a city that already had a famous cleric named Little Antony? He would forever be that other Antony, if he was noticed at all. There was just no way for him to stretch his wings in Florence. And by and by, Antony figured out what he was going to do about it. After Antoninus was promoted to become Archbishop of Florence, Antony began to work on his new abbot. He had an idea. He was going to go on a preaching tour. Gradually, the abbot was won over. The one person who was not won over was Archbishop Antoninus. Although he was busy, he made the time to speak to Antony about it. Antoninus warned Antony that things would not go well. He seemed genuinely upset about the plans for the preaching tour, and pleaded with Antony not to go. But Antoninus was no longer Antony's abbot. And though Antoninus could perhaps have put his foot down, he didn't. So Antony listened to the archbishop's advice, ignored it, and set off on his preaching tour.
The plan was to sail to Sicily and tour the island, preaching. Then he would go to Naples and preach there. Who knew? Perhaps his preaching would set Italy on fire the way the great preachers of his order had done in the past. Antony boarded a ship, headed for Sicily, and almost right away, everything went wrong. Sea travel had always been dangerous. The weather could be unpredictable. Conditions on board ship could be unpleasant. But the greatest danger for Christians traveling in the Mediterranean were the pirates who sailed north from the Muslim cities along the coast of North Africa. Piracy was not exactly a new phenomenon in the Mediterranean. Nor were Christians without defenders. Some kings sent their navies to patrol, or even raided Muslim cities and freed Christian slaves. After the fall of the Holy Land, the Knights Hospitaller tried to help Christians on the sea from their island fortress at Rhodes. But as the Middle Ages came to an end, change was in the air, and Christians were more exposed than ever before. Constantinople had fallen in 1453, and the vast power of the Ottoman Turks was felt everywhere. War at sea was different, as captains incorporated the new technology of gunpowder cannons. In just a few years, Europe would be stunned by the rise of the pirate lords, Oruge and his brother, Kizir, whom the Italians would nickname the Brothers Barbarossa for their red beards. The Brothers Barbarossa would launch the age of the Barbary Corsairs. Antony's ship never made it to Sicily. It was captured by raiders sailing out of Tunis, built near the ruins of Carthage at the northern tip of modern Tunisia. And so, instead of his preaching tour, Antony watched as a prisoner as his ship sailed south and through the white walls of the fortified port into the capital city of Zaltan Uthman. Captured Christians did not have it easy. If they were lucky, they might be ransomed, in which case they would be returned to Europe unharmed. If they were unlucky, or too poor to get a ransom, they would remain slaves. And captured Christians also faced a moral dilemma. One aspect of the struggle between Europe and the lords of Africa and the Middle East was religious. Christians and Muslims were keenly aware that they followed different and utterly incompatible religions. Christians also knew that, most of the time, Muslims did not keep other Muslims as slaves. That meant that there was a very simple way for captured Christians to gain their freedom, convert to Islam. Antony arrived in Tunis and was put into prison. Soon, he was contacted by the representative of the city of Genoa, who began working on the process of ransoming him. But as the days went by, Antony began to resent his position. He was being fed nothing but bread and water, and he hated it. A local priest who visited him in prison began to notice that Antony was skipping the daily office. He was supposed to be setting Italy on fire with his preaching, not rotting in prison, abandoned by his god. As the weeks turned into months, Antony lost his faith. 
And then, one day, Antony called his jailers and announced to them that he had reached a decision. He was going to convert to Islam. Now, originally, the capture of a Dominican friar had not been big news. There were other priests and monastics in Tunis, both in captivity and free. Indeed, Mercedarians like St. Peter Armengol voluntarily became slaves, trading themselves for the freedom of others. But the fact that a Dominican preacher was converting to Islam was much bigger news. The court of the Sultan of Tunis was delighted. This would be a serious morale boost for the Muslim majority, and it would demoralize the Christians in the city. Antony was not just set free. He was rewarded and celebrated in Tunis. He was given a job that would put his natural intelligence to good use, studying and perhaps translating the Quran into Latin. He was also provided with a wife. He had money and status, and for a little while, Antony persuaded himself that he was happy. But as the months went by, Antony grew more and more certain that he had made a mistake. The more Antony studied the Quran, the more he loathed it. Antony had cut himself out of the Christian community. So he began talking to sailors in Tunis, asking for news from home. And that was how he got the news that, in Florence, his old abbot, St. Antoninus, had died. Antony listened to the sailors talk about Antoninus's goodness, and the way that after the saint's death, reports of miracles from his intercession were already rolling in. When he went home, Antony thought about what he had heard. The more he thought about Antoninus, the more he was crushed by guilt. The worst thing was that he could now see that Antoninus had been right about everything. Instead of listening to his abbot, Antony had schemed his way on a preaching tour that had led him to be a slave, then an apostate. Antony was so disgusted with himself that he didn't even pray. He asked the holy saint Antoninus to pray for him. And perhaps, knowing that Antoninus had always managed to find time for those asking for his help, Antony wasn't totally surprised when, with no delay at all, he had a vision of his old abbot. There, before him, was Antoninus, looking the way Antony remembered him, but now radiant. In the vision, Antony blurted out the only thing he could think of to say. He quoted the words of the prodigal son, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Antoninus said nothing at all. But when Antony looked up at him, the look on the saint's face was so filled with compassion, with love, that Antony found the strength to do what he knew he had to do next. Antony separated himself from the woman he had been given as a wife. And then, Antony sought out the Christian community of Tunis. They were understandably reluctant to accept his re-conversion. But as time passed, Antony remained resolved to change his life, and the Christians of Tunis realized that he had become a different man. Just before the beginning of Lent, he was once again received into the church. Antony was a Christian again, 
but he knew there was one more thing he had to do. He had to try to repair the scandal of his very public conversion to Islam. And so on Palm Sunday of the year 1460, Antony once again put on the robes of a Dominican, once again had his hair cut in the monastic tonsure, and walked out to interrupt the sultan's procession, shouting that he was a Christian. Islam punishes those who apostatize with death. Antony was now a Muslim apostate. But just as his initial conversion had been a propaganda win for the sultan, the fact that Antony would rather die than spend one full year as a Muslim was a propaganda loss. And so, at first, various officials tried to talk him down. Maybe they needed to offer him more money or better accommodations. Antony, though, was no longer interested in what they had to offer. The more they tried to talk him down, the larger the spectacle got, as Antony used the occasion to tell everyone around them why they should become Christians, too. Finally, Antony was thrown in prison, but on a diet of bread and water. That had worked before. Antony had redeemed himself in the eyes of the Christian community in Tunis. They sent gifts of clothes and food to the prison, so that Antony would be comfortable and not have to live on bread and water. But now that Antony had finally accepted God's strange path for his life, he no longer found he needed these things. He arranged for the gifts that kept coming to the prison to be distributed to the poor. As Lent came to an end, it was obvious to the Muslim authorities that Antony was determined to turn his back on Islam. Bribes didn't work, and neither did threats. He was brought before judges and charged with apostasy, a charge he freely admitted. He was tortured, but to the annoyance of his torturers, he kept loudly praying for them. It was Thursday of Holy Week. On this day, Jesus had knelt down to wash the feet of his disciples. The disciples had been surprised. They had known that greatness was manifest in power and glory. Now, Jesus was showing them another kind of greatness. Antony had lived his whole life knowing that he was called to greatness. Now he finally saw that his calling was not to start a revival in Italy with the power of his words. It was to die alone as a witness, a stranger in a strange land. Before he was stoned to death, Antony had a moment to pray. When he stood up and went to die, his attention was fixed elsewhere, on something far away that he alone could see. (laughs) 